G'day, 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 and welcome everyone. That's our resident scaredy cat, Kate. And that's the horror junkie, Dominic. And you're listening to Shit and Bricks. A podcast where we talk shit about some scary stuff. The sort of fear your asshole knows about. As always, subscribe, rate, and review us. And don't forget to follow us on social media at Shit and Bricks Podcast. All right, drop your dax, pop a squat, and let's get into it. You're so smart, Kate. I'm such a smart pants. How smart are your panties? My smart pants are the smartest pants. <laughs> I am Hi. recording. Oh, I'm so sorry I messed it up. Oh. <laughs> yeah, you were all over it and I just messed it up with my non-stop jibber jabber. Okay, sorry. You can start this one. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Kate. Oh, no. <laughs> Hi, Dom. <laughs> how are you today? I'm really good. How are, how are you? I'm really well. It is uh, the last week of school for the term. And for teachers, students and parents alike, well, maybe not parents because their gremlins will be at their homes permanently. But certainly for teachers and students, we are like Leonardo DiCaprio fucked on Quaaludes crawling to the Lamborghini style tired. <laughs> like that's... <laughs> I know I, that feeling oh, very well. <laughs> my gosh, we are we're lewd's level of time. That's what we're at. <laughs> Except uh, we're we're crawling to like an old eighties Vol- Volvo and <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's at the local RSL, not some <laughs> mansion. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it's it's shandies instead of quaaludes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've had one too many Panadol. Woo! Oh, no, not again. Uh, how are you, my darling? How are you going this week? I am fabulous. This is a very exciting episode. I have got so much to share. Um, there, What have we had this week? The past two weeks or, you know, one or two weeks, uh, Kate, we've had uh, my nephew's 100th uh, AFL game. Yes. That's very exciting. My father just turned 70, so I just got back from a weekend away. You know how wild 70ths can be. Yeah. Well, I do with your family, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we just ticked over our thousandth download. Hello. Yes. We're doing a dance right now for those that can't see. But that's so impressive. Considering we just, you know, I, I'm so proud as punch of that because we're only 20, this is our 23rd episode. So we're 23 episodes in, we've had a thousand downloads. I think that's bloody good. Yeah, I'm very impressed. I'm so proud of us. So here's to the next thousand. Absolutely. Thousand episodes, thousand quaaludes. It's just a time. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> If anyone has a thousand of those, if you have one of those, please yeah, got one. post it. <laughs> Send it our way. We'll, we'll come and pick it up, though. Um, now, I have a bone to pick with you, Dominic. Yes. How very dare you make me wait two weeks for this episode. <laughs> you left us on a cliffhanger. I've had feedback of people reacted the same way that I did. Just, you know, audible gasps when you get to the end. If you've not gone and listened to part one of this uh, of this two-part episode, please do yourself a favour. But I have been, oh, it's all I can think about. Hanging out, you have Absolutely. been. Well, the announcements aren't over yet, so you're going to have to wait just a little oh bit God. longer. Okay. Isn't that enough? A thousand downloads, a seventieth and a hundredth. Is it something else to do with numbers? Because <laughs> yes, excellent. Uh, speaking of audible gasps, one of our most dedicated listeners, uh, your sister, is having yes. a very special day today. Oh my gosh! I'm really glad you remembered that. <laughs> so Chelsea, yes. this one's for you, darling. Happy Absolutely. birthday! Happy birthday, Chelsea. She has turned seventy, also. So that's two, <laughs> two in the one, two in the one weekend. No, she's not 70. I think there's a seven in the number, but I won't divulge the rest of it. Um, Divide it by half. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Happy birthday, Chelsea. I hope you enjoy this episode. She was the audible gasp person as well. One of them for sure. This episode can be dedicated to you. Yes, it is the birthday episode. Mm. But 
apart from all these anniversaries and milestones and all that stuff, I have an exciting new thing that uh, we're going to start introducing into our episodes. And Kate's looking at me really puzzled like because I haven't run any of this by her. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping it's what I'm thinking, but let, bring it on. No, of course you do know. But um, <laughs> I thought at the start of all of our episodes, uh, we could start putting in just this little shout out um, because in the past couple of weeks, I've mentioned it, we've uh, networked with some other really awesome podcasts that are doing similar-ish things to ourselves and uh, one of the biggest challenges for new starting podcasts is you know networking and finding new listeners so Kate and I have been busy behind the scenes connecting with all these really awesome podcasts and we've unofficially called it the Boo Pod Network Boo as in scurry oh I like it (laughs) and uh, each week we're going to do a bit of a shout out for one of these other podcasts And we're also going to play their little promo um, before we get into our episode. So I have done the the honours, Kate, of doing our first one. Amazing. (laughs) Um, So I'm going to be featuring, uh, for our first ever BooPod Network feature, the podcast called The Activity Continues. And Kate, I swear to God, you have to listen to these two. I, the words cannot describe how fun and entertaining they are. Amy and Megan, I think they're, they're, they're from North America somewhere. I don't know whether it's Canada or somewhere like Minnesota because yeah. they've got like a Minnesota accent Amazing. sometimes, which just cracks me up even more. And I would describe them as a couple of scamps who love their coffee and their wine, sometimes mixed in the same drink. About that, yeah, they don't know about it either. Okay, perfect. <laughs> if you've listened to their latest episode, they uh, they do discover um, some random drinks. So, uh, if we ever meet them in person, I hope they buy us one. Oh, we'll be in trouble. But uh, essentially, their podcast it's a recap pod of the TV show The Death Files. So, if you've never heard of it, I highly recommend go watching it. But uh, each week they each tell a story, uh, recapping one of the episodes of The Death Files. And it's uber spooky, uber scary. Uh, and, yeah, they talk about some of like their own personal experiences with the, the supernatural, the paranormal. So, yeah, go check it out. You'll have a laugh. They are so similar to us. Uh, they're just full of shit and in the best possible way. <laughs> Excellent. I love that so much. I love a little Boo Pod Network. <laughs> so uh, here's their promo. Enjoy, and we'll be right back with the rest of this episode after this. Boo-boo-boo. Hello, Ghosty fam. Have you heard our podcast, The Activity Continues? I'm Amy, and I host the show with my friend and fellow fan of the paranormal, Megan. Hi, everyone. Our show is a recap of the TV show, The Dead Files, which airs on the Travel Channel. Every week, we each pick an episode of The Dead Files and recap it for you. He thinks that he's possibly possessed. That's a bold statement to throw the P-word around. Right, I know. And sometimes we even dig a little into the history of the crimes that led to the paranormal activity. That case was interesting to me, and so I googled it, and I newspapers.com'd it, and I found out a whole bunch of other stuff. Okay. We also talk about our own paranormal experiences and would love to talk about yours as well. And the next night, my bed moves. No. I about shit. But I didn't sleep for a week, I'm telling you. But I was convinced that this demon spirit that had attacked me in my dream was now and this bed. So if you want to share your stories, email us at theactivitycontinues at gmail.com. So grab a stogie, hop in the caddy, and join us for The Activity Continues. Nailed it. Oh, yay. Now we're back. <laughs> All right, so Kate. Cute. I love that. But you've made me wait long enough. Enough is enough. I've, I've had it up to pussies both. Hit me with Miracle Flight, please, for the love of God, Dominic. All right, let's just jump straight back into it. Uh, If you haven't listened to it, just go back and listen to episode 21. I'm going to do a quick little recap and then we will pick up where we left off. So for those that haven't listened and though they should, uh, 
We were on a flight, Miracle Flight 571. They have just crashed uh, in the Andes. A lot of people have died. There isn't much in the way of survival gear. They have decided that they need to walk out to save themselves because no one's coming to get them. And you may remember that a small group decided to go for a little expedition to, you know, see what they could find. And they they were going uh, probably in the wrong direction, I think mm. is the best way to describe it. <laughs> it's tricky in the Andes and it's snowing. Everything looks the bloody same. So, mm. you know, I don't blame them. So let's get back to uh, that little snippet. I'm going to read the last couple of sentences and then we'll pick up where we left off. Amazing. So where did we leave it off? They continued east the next morning on the second night of the expedition, which was their first night sleeping outside. They nearly froze to death. After some debate the next morning, they decided that it would be wiser to return to the tail, remove the aircraft's batteries and take them back to the fuselage so they might power up the radio and make an SOS call to Santiago for help. Sounds like a good idea, right? I like it, yeah. Okay, so upon returning to the tail, the trio found that the 24 kilogram, 53 pounds, batteries were too heavy to take back to the fuselage, which lay uphill from the tail section. Mm, okay. They decided instead that it would be more effective to return to the fuselage and disconnect the radio system from the aircraft's frame. Yeah then come back to the tail and connect it to the batteries. That's clever. One of the team members, Roy Harley, was an amateur electronics enthusiast. We met Roy previously. Yes. And they recruited his help in this endeavor. Now, unknown to any of the team members, the aircraft's electrical system used 115 volts, while the battery they had located produced only 24 volts. Oh, no making this whole plan futile from the beginning. Oh, I've said last episode, they've had enough bad luck. Like, <laughs> they just need some luck. Mm-hmm. After several days of trying to make the radio work, they gave up and returned to the fuselage with the knowledge that they would have to climb out of the mountains if they were to have any hope of being rescued. On the return trip, they were struck by another blizzard. Oh, of course. Harley... Yep, Harley, the uh, electronics enthusiast, he just lay down to die, but Parado would not let him stop and he took him back to the fuselage. I don't know where people get this sort of motivation. Yeah. I get really absolutely offside if my soy milk is not, like I have to get a fresh one out of the cupboard and then it's not cold for my wheat bags. That's just about enough for me to lay down in a blizzard, to be honest. And where, yeah. do the, where do these people who have eaten like a couple of bits of candy, one nut between 10 of them, and then a bit of skin and bones from their friends, where are they getting this motivation? I'd yeah. love to know. We're talking two blizzards, an avalanche, uh, multiple trips backwards and forwards, thinking that they had oh. a plan, listening to a radio on a radio at the beginning and hearing that the rescue's cancelled. Like everything is being thrown at them. Yeah. Now, on November 15th, Arturo died, and three days later, Rafael Acavran died from the gangrene due to their infected wounds. Yeah. Numa Tukadi, whose revulsion for eating the meat accelerated his physical decline, died on day 60, the 11th of December, weighing only 55 pounds, 25 kilos. No. Now, Kate, I have taken shits as big as that after, <laughs> after a big weekend. He weighed the same as a battery. Yeah, 25 kilos. Oh, my gosh. That's not, like, that's wild. Yeah. I can't even imagine. That would literally be skin and bone. 55 pounds, yeah. It can't be. It has to be just skin and bone. Yeah. Now that was on day 60, by the way, so yeah. 11th of December. So we've jumped ahead just a little bit, but yeah. Now those left knew that they would inevitably die if they did not find help. The survivors heard on the transistor radio that the Uruguayan Air Force had resumed search of, searching for them though. Okay, that's good. 
by this time, the weather had obviously improved to a degree that mm. they were able to search and travel again. Well, I mean, they're there for the changing of the seasons, which blows my mind, but they are still on this mountain for the changing of the seasons. So that's a positive, maybe. Yes, mm. I like Okay, we're on the upswing, Kate. Okay, I hope so. I just can't take any more. I'm really still stuck thinking about my soy milk saga, so <laughs> it's really, I can't take it. Help me out. All right, this next section is called the rescue trek. Step one, making a sleeping bag. Should I write these down? <laughs> Am I going to need these steps? Anytime I hear a step, I'm like, oh, someone get me a pen. We love making a list. Our survival tips. Double Kate, survival guide. Amazing. We'll have to put these in our socials. We should make a book, by the way. We're done. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I am writing that down. We'll make a book. The Lonely Planets must buy. <laughs> okay, rescue trek. Step one making a sleeping bag. It was now apparent that the only way out was to climb over the mountains to the west. They also realized that unless they found a way to survive the freezing temperatures of the nights, a trek was impossible. So the survivors who had found the rear of the fuselage came up with an idea to use insulation from the rear of the fuselage, copper wire and waterproof fabric that covered the air conditioning of the plane to fashion a sleeping bag. That's clever. Now, Nando Parado described in his book, Miracle in the Antes, 72, 72 Days on the Mountain and My Long Trek Home, how they came up with the idea of making a sleeping bag. So this is Parado's words. The second challenge would be to protect ourselves from exposure, especially after sundown. At this time of year, we could expect daytime temperatures well above freezing, but the nights were still cold enough to kill us. And we knew now that we couldn't expect to find shelter on the open slopes. We needed a way to survive the long nights without freezing and this quilted uh, the, and the quilted bats of insulation we'd taken from the tail section gave us our solution. As we brainstormed about the trip, we realized we could sew, pat the, sew the patches together to create a large warm quilt. Then we realized that by folding the quilt in half and stitching the seams together, we could create an insulated sleeping bag large enough for all three expeditionaries to sleep in. With the warmth of three bodies trapped by the insulating cloth, we might be able to weather the coldest of nights. Carlitos took on the challenge. His mother had taught him to sew when he was a boy. And with the needles and thread from the sewing kit found in his mother's cosmetic case, he began to work. Oh my gosh. There you go. Hot tip. Teach your kids, boys, girls, and everyone in between and either side, teach them how to sew. Teach them life skills. This is amazing. I was just about to say exactly that and put them in, in dance class too. Yes, yes, put them in a dance class and an acting class, even if they hate drama. I'm, yep. a, I'm an advocate. It's so many things. Just, yeah, that's a, that's our separate PSA. That's a soapbox that I will happily die on. Yes. <laughs> with your soy milk. With my, Yeah, with my soy milk. Don't, bring it up. <laughs> I was just getting over it. Okay. <laughs> so to speed up the progress, Carlitos taught others to sew and we all took our turns. Coach, Coche, I forgot, names Ooh. are hard, all right? I know. C-O-C-H-E, yeah. Uh, Gustavo and Fido turned out to be our best and fastest tailors. After the sleeping bag was completed and Numa uh, Tukati died, we talked about them mm -hmm. previously, Kinesa was still hesitant. While others encouraged Parado, none would volunteer to go with him. Parado finally persuaded Kinesa to set out and joined by Vitzin, the three of the men took to the mountain on the 12th of December. Oh. So this is the day after that final person died weighing yeah. 25 kilos. Yeah, exactly. So climbing the peak. Step two. On 12th of December, 1972, Parado, Kinesa and Vitzin lacking any mountaineering gear of any kind, began to climb the glacier at 3,570 metres to the peak, blocking their way in the west, which was a good, you know, over a 1,000 metres difference they had to climb in height. Mm. They trekked for over 10 days, 38 miles, or 61 kilometres, to seek help. 
Now, based on the aircraft's altimeter, they thought they were at 7,000 feet, when that they were actually at about 11,800 feet. Damn. Yeah. Now, given the pilot's dying statement that they were near Carucho, that they believed that they were near the western edge of the Andes. As a result, they brought only a three-day supply of meat. Oh, no. Parado wore three pairs of jeans and three sweaters over a polo shirt. He wore four pairs of socks wrapped in plastic shopping bags. They had no technical gear, no map or compass, and no climbing experience. Instead of climbing to the, uh, climbing the saddle to the west, that is about 1,600 metres lower than the peak, they climbed straight up the steep mountain. They thought they would reach the peak in one day. Parado took the lead and the other two often had to remind him to slow down, although the thin, oxygen-poor air made it difficult for all of them. Mm. During part of the climb, they sank up to their hips in the snow, which had been softened by the summer sun. So, you know, you think weather's getting better, this is all good, it's a good sign for them, but it's actually making things not harder necessarily, but it's just all different challenges, right? Really bad, yeah. I was trying to think about distance too. You said six, 60 kilometres. You know, I'm probably 30K from the CBD, mm. and that's so it's to the city and back. Yeah. And that's tricky on, like, footpaths. And you're, you're climbing yeah. over a 1,000, yeah, like... It's, wow. It's a kilometre up. <laughs> I'm really struggling to comprehend how they survived. I'm yeah. really struggling to comprehend this. Now, it was still bitterly cold, but the sleeping bag allowed them to live long through the night. So that was a massive win. Yeah. In the film Stranded, which is not the film that we mentioned last week, but it's similar. Uh, in the film Stranded, Kinesa described how on the first night during the ascent, they had difficulty finding a place to put down the sleeping bag. A storm blew so fiercely and they finally found a spot on a ledge of rock on the edge of an abyss. Kinesa, no. yeah. Sorry, that's a, that's, a no, that's a no from me. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the whole rock thing and then just throw in an abyss for extra measure. No thanks. Yeah, just make it that little bit more dangerous. Yeah. Now, Knesset said it was the worst night of his life. Mm. The climb was very slow. The survivors at the fuselage watched them climb for three days. Ugh. On the second day, Knesset thought he saw a road to the east and tried to persuade Parado to head in that direction. Parado disagreed and they argued without reaching a decision. On the third morning of the trek, Knesset stayed at their camp. Vitzen and Parado reached the base of a near vertical wall more than 100 metres tall, encased in snow and ice. Parado was determined to hike out or die trying. He used a stick from his pack to carve steps in the wall. He gained the summit of the 4,650 metres high peak before Vitzen. Thinking he would see the green valleys of Chile to the west, he was stunned to see a vast array of mountain peaks in absolutely every direction. Oh, no. They had climbed a mountain on the border of Argentina and Chile, meaning the trekkers were still tens of kilometres from the green valleys of Chile. Oh, that makes this, me feel sick. Yeah. Imagine that. They're like, oh, thank God, I'm just at the final vertical wall. I'm going to fashion myself some steps and then we'll be on our way. And then you reach that peak. You would just, I would think I would just, just fling myself off the edge. Honestly, <laughs> I would just be like, oh, well, that's enough for me. Oh, into the abyss I go. <laughs> See you later. See ya. <laughs> yeah. Now, Vitzen and Parado rejoined Kinesa where they had slept the night before. At sunset, while sipping cognac they had found in the tail section, Parado said, Roberto, can you imagine how beautiful this would be if we were not dead men? Mm. So perceptive to be able to say that even in that state, to be able to show appreciation for just the sheer beauty of where you are in the world. And I've never been to the Andes. I cannot wait to go to that part of the world. Yeah. It's like a dream of mine. But... Because it is so stunning and beautiful, but my God, after 70 days or whatever, you, oh. 
you can still have perspective enough to say that. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, that would be high on his VIA character strengths, mm. appreciation of beauty. <laughs> it's got to be his number one, surely. If I saw him on Hinge, I would totally... I would swipe that. Imagine that. Wowee. As long as then the next picture isn't of him holding a fucking fish, then yeah. he'll get a swipe. <laughs> I don't want to see your pictures of holding fish. Stop it, men. Yeah. And women, for that matter, if you're posting them and everyone else in between. If you're holding fish in your profiles, stop it. Yep. So the next morning, the three men could see that the hike was obviously going to take much longer than they had originally planned. Mm -hmm. They were running out of food, so Vitson agreed to return to the crash site. The return was entirely downhill and using an aircraft seat as a makeshift sleigh <gasps> or toboggan, as we like toboggan. to say. Toboggan. <laughs> oh, that's the best. He returned to the crash site in one hour, Kate. What took what? them three days to achieve, he did in one hour. Oh, Christ. That's not a good ratio. No. I'm not good at math, but I can tell that that's not a good ratio. <laughs> Um, yeah, not great. So Parado and Canessa took three hours to climb to the summit. When Canessa reached the top and saw nothing but snow-capped mountains for kilometres around them, his first thought was, we're dead. Yeah. Parado saw two smaller peaks on the western horizon that were not covered in snow. And there was a valley at the base of the mountain they stood on uh, and wound its way towards the peaks. Parado was sure that this was their way out of the mountains. He refused to give up hope. Canessa agreed to go west. Only much later did Canessa learn that the trail that he thought he saw would have gotten them to rescue. <gasps> no. So the initial one or that yeah. windy one, the initial one where he said that's a road and the other guy was like, it's not a road. And he's like, it's definitely a road. And they said, yep. let's agree to disagree. Yep. And then nothing happened. Mm -hmm. Oh, oh. Holy moly. They were so close, Kate, and it's oh. in the map. It's <gasps> soul-destroying how close they were. Oh, I want to see that picture real bad. On the summit, Parado told Canessa, we may be walking to our deaths, but I would rather walk to meet my death than wait for it to come to me. Oh, wow, yeah. Canessa agreed, and he said, you and I are friends, Nando. We have been through so much. Now let's go die together. And they followed the ridge towards the valley and descended a considerable distance. All right. Finding if you say, help. Oh, my God. <laughs> if you were just about to stop this episode, I was just about to delete your number from my phone. That's what was no. going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and then this giant volcano erupted in front of them and killed them. <laughs> and a spaceship came and they got abducted. <laughs> and then they had to be hypnotized. <laughs> Oh, no. Next section. Great. Finding help. Step three. Parado and Canessa hiked for several more days. First, they were able to reach the narrow valley that Parado had seen on the top of the mountain, where they found the source of the Rio San Jose, leading to the Rio Portillo, which meets the Rio Azufre at Maitenez. So, bunch of rivers, babe. They all, they all connect. Yep. They followed the river and reached the snow line. So a snow line is obviously when the temperatures of a level where snow cannot no longer survive and it snow can't know. grow. Yeah, exactly. The snow <laughs> trees are dead. <laughs> so gradually they appeared more and more signs of human presence. First some evidence of camping and finally on the ninth day some cows. Cows. Do you think they said that when they saw them? Yeah, moo. I think yeah. <laughs> beef or cow. <laughs> when they rested that evening, they were very tired. <laughs> no shit, oh, no Sherlock. Shit. <laughs> Holy, I mean, I'm not an author, but I definitely could have. I could have guessed that. So, yeah. Fuck and Kinesa, uh, he pretty much just gave up. He said, "I, I, I can't go any I'm further. Done. I'm just, yeah. I am cooked." As the men gathered wood to build a fire, one of them saw three men on horseback on the other side of the river. Oh, my God. Parada called them, but the noise of the river made it impossible to communicate. Oh. One of the men across the river saw Parado and Canessa and shouted back, Tomorrow. No. So, yeah. Oh, my God. Do you have any idea? It'd be like, no. Tommy, <laughs> we've been on a cliff. Now. 
right now. Yeah. <laughs> right effing now, buddy. No tomorrow. <laughs> get your pony over this mountain and this water and come get me. The next day, the man did, in fact, return. Oh, thank Christ for that. He scribbled a note, attached it and a pencil to a rock with some string and threw the message across the river. We've got a photo of the note. It will be shared on our socials. Parado replied, I come from a plane that fell in the mountains. I am Uruguayan. We have been walking for 10 days. I have a wounded friend up there. In the plane, there are still 14 injured people. We have to get out from here quickly and we don't know how. We don't have any food. We are weak. When are you going to come fetch us? Please. We cannot even walk. Where are we? Oh, my God. Imagine reading that note. You would just... Oh, you'd be like, oh, geez, I feel really bad about the whole tomorrow thing. I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> I just had a bit of gas because I had some dodgy, <laughs> dodgy seafood and I just really needed to go. I just wasn't into helping you out yesterday. But goodness me, do I seem like a fool now. Yeah. Sozzy. Now, Sergio Catalan, a Chilean Arero, a Miltia, so works with mules, mm-hmm. read the note and gave them a sign that he understood. Catalan talked with the other two men and one of them remembered that several weeks before Carlos Perez's father had asked them if they had heard about the Andes plane crash. The Herreros could not imagine that anyone could still be alive. Catalan threw bread to the men across the river. He then rode on horseback westward for 10 hours straight to bring help. Mm. That is a very hard thing to do, just in case. Can I ask as well... Like how, like how raging is this river? So they can throw bread and rocks, but they can't, they can't get across. Is it like, is this a perilous river? It must be. It must be. I'm sure, you know, up in the mountains where there's lots of snow, I'm sure Mm. at some point the river's probably either frozen over or quite, you know, water's not really flowing because everything's frozen. Yeah. But I would imagine as we're coming into the summer season, a lot of snow is melting. So yeah. that river's probably picked up a bit of steam, I'd imagine. Yep, gotcha. And without, you know, I don't have any, I don't think they had cameras and things to, you know, take a picture of the exact yep. conditions of the river yeah. at the time. But I would imagine that if they waited for the next day and even in their weak state, they probably shouldn't try and cross a river yeah for sure cold water yeah all that sort of stuff so gotcha yeah so catalan he rode for 10 hours straight to try and bring help Uh, during his trip he saw another herrero on the south side of the rio azufre and asked him to reach the men and to bring them to los martinez then he followed the river to its junction with rio tinguericha where after crossing a bridge, he was able to reach the narrow route that linked the village of Puente Negro to the holiday resort of Termas del Flaco, that place that was abandoned that I told you that they were, what, 20 kilometres oh, near? Oh, God. Yeah, okay. Um, so, yeah. Uh, here, he was able to stop a truck and reach the police station at Puente Negro. They relayed news of the survivors to the army command in San Fernando, Chile, who contacted the army in Santiago. Amazing. Meanwhile, Parado and Canessa were brought on horseback to Los Martinez de Carucha, where they were fed and allowed to rest. What, you're going to make them go <laughs> run a half marathon? You're not allowed to do the dishes before we feed you. Yeah, no, no, no rest for the wicked. Up you get. <laughs> they had hiked about 38 kilometres 24 miles over 10 days. Since the plane crash, Canessa had lost almost half of his body weight, about 44 kilograms. So he weighed, you know, he weighed more than I did, but imagine, you know, me losing half of what I've got. Mm, No. And I'm not, I'm not a big boy. No, not at all. Okay. Helicopter rescue. Step four. Okay, good. When the news broke out that people had survived the crash of Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571, the story of the passengers' survival after 72 days drew international attention, obviously. Yeah. 
A flight of international reporters began walking several kilometres along the route from Puente Negro to Termas del Flaco. The reporters clamoured to interview Parado and Canessa about the crash and their survival ordeal. The Chilean Air Force provided three helicopters to assist with the rescue. They flew in heavy cloud cover under instrument conditions to Los Martínez de Crucho, where they the army interviewed Parado and Canessa. Mm-hmm. When the fog lifted at about noon, Parado volunteered to lead the helicopters back to the crash site. Oh, my gosh. He had brought the pilot's flight chart and guided the helicopters up the mountain to the location of the remaining survivors. One helicopter remained behind in reserve, just in case. Yep. The pilots were astounded at the difficult terrain the two men had crossed to reach help. On the afternoon of the 22nd of December 1972, the two helicopters carrying search and rescue personnel reached the survivors. The steep terrain only permitted the pilot to touch down with a single skid. Due to the altitude and weight limits, the two helicopters were able to take only half of the survivors. Oh, how do you pick that? Yeah. Do you just draw, you know, draw straws? Straws. I'd say most in need first. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Four members of the search and rescue team volunteered to stay with the seven remaining survivors on the mountain. Mm. The survivors slept a final night in the fuselage with the search and rescue party. Oh. Yeah. The second flight of helicopters arrived the following morning at daybreak. Thank goodness it oh was God, better they didn't weather. Oh, my God, to wait all damn day. Yeah, that's right. Okay. They carried the remaining survivors to hospitals in Santiago for evaluation. They were treated for a variety of conditions, including yeah. altitude sickness, dehydration, frostbite, broken bones, scurvy, and malnutrition. The last remaining survivors were rescued on the 23rd of December, 1972, more than two months after the crash. Under normal circumstances, the search and rescue team would have brought back the remains of the dead for burial. However, given the circumstances, including that the bodies were in Argentina, the Chilean rescuers left the bodies at the site until authorities could make the necessary decisions. Okay. The bureaucratic processes... Mm. which, you know, I, I can understand, but goodness me, you'd feel bad as one of the rescuers, I feel like. You'd yeah. be, you know, you'd feel a bit, yeah. Now, the Chilean military photographed the bodies and mapped the area, so, you okay. know, the intention was always to come back. Yeah. Kate, take a breath. Everybody at home, take oh, a breath. They are okay. off the mountain. They have been rescued. Thank goodness for that. And we oh. kind of knew that was coming in because I gave it away with the top with the title of a book, but you know that's okay. It's still intense. <laughs> it's still intense, and you still want to know how it happened. It's mm. like, yeah, I mean, spoiler alert: Bruce Willis is dead in Six Sense. <laughs> Sorry, but you want to see how it happens. <laughs> like, you still want to see that jump scare with little baby Kira Knightley, or no, not Kira Knightley, the other one from OC. Haley Joe Osmond. No. <laughs> boy. That's the boy that sees the dead people. The other bird from OC. Chelsea would know. Um, she's probably screaming it out right now. Yeah. She's like, it's my birthday podcast and you can't Isn't even Isn't it like Melissa or name. Melissa or something? Oh, or? crisp. It's going to drive me batty. Chelsea, let us know. Anyhow, yeah. um, you've got to see those jump scares. So it doesn't matter even if yeah. you, you know, threw in a little spoiler. People... People can get over it. (laughs) Yeah, they're over it. So let's get to the aftermath, shall we? Let's do it. Cannibalism revealed. So if you didn't remember, like this story does have cannibalism in it. I think we've moved so far beyond it, but... I think so. um, Upon being rescued, the survivors initially explained that they had eaten some cheese and other food they had carried with them and then local plants and herbs. They plan to discuss the details of how they survived, including their cannibalism, in private with their families. Mm-hmm. Rumours circulated in Montevideo immediately after the rescue that the survivors had killed some of the others for food. On the 23rd of December, news reports of cannibalism were published worldwide, except in Uruguay. On the 26th of December, Boxing Day, two pictures taken by members of the 
um, Andean relief corpse and a half eaten of a of a half eaten human leg were printed on the front page of two Chilean newspapers. Oh my god! Mm. Are they all right? Like, it's just unnecessary. Yeah. That is so unnecessary. This story, that as you said, we are far beyond the cannibalism side. Like this is a story of the most incredible human feat that I've mm. ever heard of to, to date. Like I cannot yeah. believe I don't know this story and this has been the best story I've ever heard. We're beyond it. Don't print it on the front page. And what if that's, you know, that's someone's, that is someone's loved one exactly. and you just print their half-eaten leg on your paper. Like mm. grow up. So in response to this, you know, sensational news, uh, the survivors held a press conference on the 28th of December at Stella Marie College in Montevideo, where they recounted the events of the past 72 days. So, you know, you're not over this, but let's just uh, get you to relive the whole fucking thing, shall we? Yeah, let's just drag you over the coals when you still haven't even recovered. Yeah. Far out. Now, Alfredo Delgado spoke to the survivors. He compared their actions to that of Jesus Christ at the Last Supper, during which uh, God gave his disciples the Eucharist. The survivors mm-hmm. received public backlash initially, but after they explained the pact the survivors had made to sacrifice their flesh if they died to help the others survive, the outcry diminished and the families were more understanding. Yeah. A Catholic priest heard the survivors' confessions and told them that they were not damned for cannibalism uh, given the uh, extremist nature of their survival situation. Yeah, I think there's a there's a statute of limitations on when you can and cannot be a cannibal. And I'm yeah. going to put that one in the top. And they didn't, you mentioned earlier, they said that, you know, they killed people to eat them. No, they mm. didn't. Mm. People just, people died and then said, hey, feel free to have a little nibble because you need to stay alive and that's what I want to do for you. Yeah. That's, oh, yeah, unreal. Look, I I wasn't able to find this in detail. Like, first of all, you know me, I like to hear both sides. Mm-hmm. Obviously, no one who was eaten survived. So yeah. it is, I'm sure some conspiracy people out there might be able to say, well, that you're taking their word on that pact. There was mm. no one who was eaten who could attest to the fact that they gave consent to it. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Right? <laughs> Walking around you. with half a leg. It's all right. But I if they, they did, could. that sounds like another episode that we could do. Right. <laughs> In yeah. saying that, though, the other the other part of me goes, they obviously did go back and find all the remains of yeah. these people. I'm sure they would be able to at least determine that no one was actively killed. Yeah to suggest therefore being killed for eating. But anyway, like, let's not get into it. I think it's more than safe to say, I believe that the pact was real. Yeah. All right, the remains. Uh, The authorities and the victims' families decided to bury the remains near the site of the crash in a common grave. 13 bodies were completely untouched, while another 15 were mostly skeletal. Twelve men and a Chilean priest were transported to the crash site on the 18th of January 1973. Family members were not allowed to attend. They dug a grave about 400 to 800 metres from the aircraft fuselage at the site they thought was safe from avalanche. Close to the grave, they built a simple stone altar and staked an orange iron cross on it. They placed a plaque on the pile of rocks and inscribed... The world to its Uruguayan brothers, close, O oh God, to you. That's nice. <laughs> I, don't I don't know what to say. That was that nice. Was, that was perfectly said. Kate. Yeah, that's nice. Uh, they doused the remains of the fuselage in gasoline and set it alight. Only mm-hmm. the charred airframe remained. The father of one of the victims had received word from a survivor that his son wished to be buried at home while Mm -hmm. he was up on the mountain. Unable to obtain official permission to retrieve his son's body, Ricardo Edvaran mounted an exhibition on his own with hired guides. He had prearranged with the priest who had buried his son to mark the bag containing his son's remains. 
Upon his return to the abandoned Hotel Damas with his son's remains, he was arrested for grave robbing. A federal judge and the local mayor intervened to obtain his release, and Akvaran later obtained legal permission to bury his son. Good. Mm. So, again, out of respect, let's list the survivors. Roberto Canessa, the medical Uh student, Nando Parado, Carlos Payas Rodriguez, Jose Pedro Algota, Alfredo Pancho Delgado, Daniel Fernandez, Roberto Bobby Francois, Roy Harley, Jose Coche Luis Incarite, Alvaro Mangino, Javier Methol, Ramon Sabella, Adolfo Fito Strouch, Eduardo Strouch, Antonio Tintin Vitzen. <laughs> and Gustavo Zabino. Amazing. All right. There is a legacy, obviously, to this amazing story. Yeah. <clears throat> the survivor's courage under extremely adverse conditions has been described as a beacon of hope to their generation, showing what can be accomplished with persistence and determination in the presence of unsurpassable odds and set our minds to attain a common aim. The story of the crash is described in the Andes Museum, which we'll put up a photo, dedicated in 2013. Uh, It's in Montvideo. Uh I've got a picture of it, so we'll put that on our socials. Uh, But back in 1973, mothers of 11 young people who died in the plane crash founded the Our Children Library in Uruguay to promote reading and teaching. Family members of the victims of the flight founded the Vivian, uh, sorry, Vivian Alive, which translates to Alive, uh, Mm -hmm. Foundation in 2006 to preserve the legacy of the flight, memory of the victims and support organ donation. The crash location attracts hundreds of people from all over the world who pay tribute to the victims and survivors and learn about how they survived. The trip to the location takes about three days. You four-wheel drive uh, vehicles, uh, they transport travellers from the village uh, to um, Puesto Ara near the abandoned Hotel Dumas. And from there, travellers ride on horseback, though some choose to walk. They stop overnight on the mountain at El Barossa camp. And on the third day, they reach Las Lagrimas Glacier, where the remains of the accident are found. Oh, man. Imagine seeing that IRL. Yeah. Be pretty intense, pretty powerful. I think so. Yeah, I also have like a fear of it. Of like, being there. Then, yeah, and then what if we got stuck? That's bad. I've heard how bad it is to get back. Yeah, we'll and know where like, to go. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> if you or I see the road, go there. That's the road. You can be <laughs> saved in twenty minutes. Damn it. In March 2006, the families of those aboard the flight had a black obelisk monument built at the crash site memorialising those who lived and died. In 2007, Chilean Herrero Sergio Catalan was interviewed on Chilean television during which he revealed that he had leg hip arthrosis. So Catalan was the gentleman that found uh, Canessa and Parado that first day. Yes, gotcha. And rode 10 hours on horseback. Yep. Legend. Uh, Carnessa, who had become a doctor and other survivors, raised funds to pay for a hip replacement operation. Sadly, Sergio Catalan died on the 11th of February 2020 at the age of 91, just before COVID ruined the world. Great. There are a number of books, plays, musicals, music and films produced that are inspired by this amazing story. There's operas, there's everything. Uh, most notable for its commercial is Frank Marshall's 1993 film narrated by John, Malcovi- John Malkovich and starring Ethan Hawke, which is mm. Alive, which we posted about two weeks ago. Yeah. And that, my dear and my listeners, is the exhausting oh. story of Miracle Flight 571. That was phenomenal. <laughs> That was my favourite story so much, Dominic. <laughs> my most best favourite. I loved it. Oh, far out. <sighs> I just can't get over it. Again, I just get tired sometimes. I just think, oh, no, I'll just have a, I'll just have a sleep in. Just another five-minute snooze. And these people, what they went through to survive that. I it's, can't comprehend it. Yeah. It's incomprehensible. 
I do recommend going and watching the movie. It's, yeah. I wouldn't say it's the greatest movie alive, but it is a pretty darn accurate sort of recreation. And I think there's some pretty cool stuff in there. Um, I rewatched it. But I know we love to have a pop culture reference and I've already spoken about Alive in the first episode. So I thought I would quickly shout out probably one of my other favorite movies, which is along the same, similar veins, is Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin in oh. a movie called, I've just forgotten what it's called, The Edge. The Edge. Yes. Nice. Okay. Which... I could watch Alec Baldwin do lots of things so it's got Elle McPherson as well but, oh um, cute okay yeah rich old man young man and their friend get plane crash in I think Alaska okay there's a bear right. I'm so. putting it on the list it's going on the list so if you're in the mood for that sort of survivally type stuff um go watch the edge it's, it's a good one too amazing I so, will Oh, Dom, that was so great. Thank you so, so much for sharing that story. You're amazing. You are most welcome. We have we have really, like, fanged it the past four weeks, really, two I double so. whammy episodes. Yeah, that's it. Our listeners, you must be pretty exhausted, but... That's so true. But th- buckle in, because there'll be another episode next week. <laughs> You're it's welcome. It's going to be really good. And, uh, a, and another Boopod uh, recommendation, so stay tuned for that as well. Yes, please do. Um, just to, uh, you know, stop everybody from screaming at me. It was Misha Barton. Misha oh. Barton is from the OC. She's in the sixth sense. She's the one with the soup that comes out of her mouth because she gets poisoned. Um, so I just needed to finish on that before we went cause I was racking my brains and it just popped into my little head. Yeah. Chelsea, stop yelling at me. Yeah. Stop screaming. Just cause it's your birthday. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you everybody. We look forward to seeing you next week and don't forget to, yeah, jump on our social medias, shit and bricks podcast. We love yes. you. Like share, follow, suggest, recommend, and go check Subscribe. out the activity continues with Megan and Amy. Yippee! See you next week! See you next week! Bye! Bye! That's a wrap! Big shout out to everyone for tuning in to Shit and Bricks. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us. Plus, you can find extra little nuggets on our socials. Next week, we'll be back talking more shit, so do not forget to tune in. And remember to wipe, flush, and wash your hands. Goodbye! Goodbye!